You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Uh, welcome to another episode of the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah, and still in my apartment, still doing the show. And you know what's crazy is, here we are. Another Monday. Another Monday in the middle of corona and in the middle of protests about police brutality. And yet, it's another Monday of another police brutality incident. Like, another story that has people going, how long? How much? When is it enough? The story is out of Atlanta. Rayshard Brooks. And forgive me if I get any of the details wrong, but as far as I know, you've probably seen the video, you've read the story. Rayshard was in his car in a Wendy's drive-thru. He was drunk or tipsy or he had, had alcohol and he fell asleep. Fell asleep, people are driving around his car. And so somebody at the Wendy's called the cops. The cops arrive at Wendy's and, you know, they get Rayshard out of the car. And they start talking to him for about 30 minutes. You know, asking him, is he drunk? Why is he driving? What's going on? I, I mean, it seems pretty standard. And the whole time throughout this video, you have human beings being human beings. You have Rashad, who's clearly inebriated, and he's talking to the cops. And you have the cops asking him the questions. And what was interesting about, for me about this video is, at, like, in the beginning, it seems like everything is gonna be fine. The cops are talking to him like a person. They're not being, they're not being aggro. They're not being disrespectful. They're not being mean or anything. He's being respectful. He's calling them sir. He's not, he's not cussing them out. He's, he's offering to, to walk home. Everything is going well. Everything is going well. And then in one moment, in just a few seconds, every part of that normal story turns into the abnormal ending that we've come to know as interactions with police and black people. Because the police try and arrest him. He, he resists and he, he wrestles with the police. In the scuffle, they try and tase him. While he's being tased, he grabs the taser, he gets up, he runs away. And I'm missing a few beats of the story because I, I, I don't want to take you through too much of it, but, but that's essentially what happens. Richard runs away and the police chase him. As he's running, he shoots off the taser and one of the cops switches his weapons from a taser to a gun and shoots Rashad two or three times in the back and he's dead. And immediately everyone, everyone goes, you know, everyone goes to their battle stations. That's, that's what plagues me about these stories. Everyone just goes to their battle stations. You know, immediately people go, well, once again, another example of black people resisting the cops and being criminals and why are you driving drunk and why are you running away from the police and what? And then, of course, you have other people, you know, in their battle stations saying, oh, of course, another story of cops who immediately shoot a black man for just sleeping in his car. But like, it's messy. No one wants to admit that the thing is messy. It's messy. If this story didn't happen now, maybe we would be looking at it differently, but it's a messy story. It's not the perfect story. And in a weird way, it not being the perfect story means we should look at it in the most perfect way possible. We should try and break it down and understand how something like this comes to be because we don't always have video like this. We don't always have stories like this. And we don't even, we don't even always look at it like this. 
But let's just take a moment to talk about what happened. You have, you have a man who is sleeping in his car, right? A man who's sleeping in his car and he's drunk. Was he drunk driving? Let's say he is, right? So he's broken some law, a law not worth dying for. I think we can all agree on that. The police approach him. And even then I asked the question, why are armed police dealing with a man who's sleeping in his car? He posed no threat to anybody. No one at Wendy's felt afraid. Cars are driving around him. He's not stopping people from ordering food. So, so why are armed police there in the first place? That's the question I feel like, these are all the questions we need to ask. Why, 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 why? Why are armed police the first people who have to go and respond to somebody who's sleeping in their car who is drunk? Secondly, why do the police not give... I mean, the man says to them, I will walk home. If you're protecting and serving people, what is the true purpose of you not wanting people to drive drunk? It's that you don't want them killing themselves and other people. In this instance, no one had died because of his driving and he hadn't killed himself because of his driving. And so as a police officer, maybe it's because I live in a utopian world where the police are truly just trying to protect and serve, not trying to write enough tickets, not trying to get enough people arrested, not trying to fill quotas. No, they're trying to protect and serve. In that instance, you would hope a policeman would say, sir, you do not look fit to drive. You said your sister lives around the corner. You said you live, let's take you, we'll take you home. We didn't find you driving drunk. We found you asleep in a car. So we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. The country's burning down because of the way black people are, are dealt with by the police. So let us show you just in a moment that it doesn't always have to end the way you think it has to end. I'm not saying they had to do that, but it would have been nice. They arrest him. He fights. Now, you know what's messy about this whole thing is we forget you are dealing with a drunk person. You're dealing with somebody. The very fact that you're not allowed to sign a contract when you're drunk, the very fact that you're not, you're not allowed to do anything when you're drunk tells us something about drunk people. We know what a drunk person is in society. They're not gonna do the logical thing. So as a policeman, if a drunk person does an illogical thing, like, I feel like you should acknowledge the fact that they're drunk. It doesn't mean they deserve to die. They're drunk. We know what drunk people do. I've been drunk, you've been drunk, everyone has been drunk. You don't deserve to die for being drunk. And if police cannot respond or cannot handle a drunk person, well then, then they shouldn't be responding. If you responding to a person who's drunk means that person can be dead, the whole point of you going there was to make sure that people don't die because of whatever's happened. But if the people are gonna end up dead anyway, then what's the point? And people say he shouldn't have resisted. Yeah, he's drunk. I'm not excusing his act, but he's drunk. In a situation like that, the sober person, in my opinion, the sober person, the onus is upon them to make sure the situation doesn't get out of hand. You're sober, he's drunk. How are two sober men wrestling with a drunk person on the ground? How does it get that far? How does it end with him losing his life? And people always say the same thing. They go, well, you know, if you didn't do that, then you would still be alive. They say this shit all the time, if you didn't do that. But the, the truth is, the ifs keep on changing. Oh, if you didn't, you didn't resist arrest. If you didn't resist arrest, you would still be alive. Or if you didn't run away from the cops, you would still be alive. Well, if you didn't have a toy gun and were 12 years old in the middle of a park, then you would have still been alive. Well, you know what? If you weren't wearing a hoodie, you would have still been alive. Well, you know, if you didn't talk back to the cops, you would have still been alive. If you weren't sleeping in your bed as a black woman, 
you would have still been alive. There's one common thread beyond all the ifs. If you weren't black, maybe you'd still be alive. That's what I have to say. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So, let's talk about some of the other news that's going on right now. As you may or may not know, June is Pride Month. It's the month where we take a moment to celebrate how far LGBTQIA rights have come while still acknowledging all the work that still needs to be done. It's also the month where J.K. Rowling tries to do what Voldemort couldn't and destroy Harry Potter. But this year, Pride Month had been made worse by the Trump administration. They killed a rule that blocks doctors from refusing to treat transgender people. And on Saturday, they announced a new proposal allowing single-sex homeless shelters to turn away transgender people who are, quote, not rarely the right gender. And you know, it's amazing that even during a pandemic and national protests, Trump has still found a way to say, screw you to the LGBTQ community. It's almost like if Hannibal Lecter was on his way to kill someone and then took a quick detour to burn down a community garden. How much hate does one person need? So this Pride Month wasn't looking great. But then this happened. A major civil rights decision out of the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has ruled that LGBT Americans are protected by the anti-discrimination laws of this country at their workplaces. They cannot be fired or otherwise discriminated against at work simply because they are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. It was written uh, by Justice Neil Gorsuch and joined by Chief Justice John Roberts. Gorsuch appointed by President Trump. Chief Justice John Roberts, the leader of the conservative wing of the court, it is a six to three opinion, which in ringing terms holds that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 encompasses lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in this country, protecting them from discrimination by their employers. Yes, gay people across America just got a huge win and Mike Pence just got a huge aneurysm. The Supreme Court has ruled that people cannot be discriminated against at work simply because of their sexual orientation or gender identity. And the reason is because they are protected by the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And you gotta admit, that is one badass law to still be helping more groups get equal rights. I mean, we have to buy a new iPhone every two years, but somehow this act is rolling out new features 56 years later. And obviously, this should all be basic decency, right? Nobody should be fired just for being gay. I mean, the only reason you should be fired is if you're doing your job poorly, or if you're doing your job so well that you make the rest of us look bad. I mean, then you also need to go. Now, the Supreme Court ruling isn't the only good news for human rights that is coming out right now. Because over the weekend, Black Lives Matter rallies continued spreading around the globe. Black Lives Matter and anti-racism protests continue around the world. Thousands in Europe, Asia, and the South Pacific continued marching to call for equality. Black Lives Matter still reverberating around the world. Massive protests in Japan, New Zealand, South Korea. This is the US embassy there. Thousands of people have formed a human chain in Berlin to unite against racism and discrimination. Participants were asked to wear masks and to keep socially distanced from one another, and they were linked by colorful ribbons, forming what organizers called a ribbon of solidarity. 
Protesters chanting Black Trans Lives Matter outside the Brooklyn Museum. A number of groups took part in yesterday's demonstration with transgender activists leading a march. Nearly 30,000 people all dressed in white in honor of black trans lives. It represented unity in the fight for equality, for justice, for two deeply marginalized groups in New York City. Yes, from Brooklyn to Europe and all the way to New Zealand, thousands of people from all walks of life are still assembling in the streets to say that black lives matter. And it really is a powerful thing to see. I mean, the last thing this many people agreed on was that Carol Baskin probably killed her husband. I mean, they're even coming out in Japan. They don't even have black people in Japan. Japan is basically saying, when we finally see a black person, we will welcome them with open arms. And as the whole world is watching these rallies take place around the globe, it's clear that one person is starting to feel jealous. Donald Trump, president of the United States and the only human who has ever fired a secretary of state and meatloaf. Trump hasn't been able to hold a rally of his own since before the coronavirus pandemic. But after months of waiting, he announced that his first rally in months would take place this Friday in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There was just one problem. A rare reversal from President Trump, now delaying his controversial Tulsa rally. It was initially scheduled for Juneteenth, a day marking the end of slavery. But after criticism for the timing and Tulsa's history as a city scarred by century-old race riots, the president tweeted, Many of my African-American friends and supporters have reached out to suggest that we consider changing the date out of respect for this holiday. I have therefore decided to move our rally to Saturday, June 20th, in in order to honor their request. Now, one way to look at this is that Trump is so oblivious, he didn't even realize how messed up it would be to have a rally on Juneteenth in a city where one of America's worst racial massacres took place. But I guess the glass half full version of the story is that even someone as racially insensitive as Trump is now recognizing the importance of Juneteenth. And that's not nothing. I mean, let's be honest, a year ago, If you told Trump that he couldn't hold a rally on Juneteenth, what would he have said? He probably would have been like, if I cared about emancipation, I would have freed Melania a long time ago. So the point is, Trump is recognizing in his own small grudging way, the importance of Juneteenth. And I think it's good that Trump made the decision to move the rally because nobody was buying his first solution, which was to pretend that the rally was for Juneteenth. Your rally in Oklahoma is set for June 19th. Was that on purpose? Uh, no, but I know exactly what you're going to say. Well, and I'm just asking. It. It's on the day of African-American emancipation. It's, it's, that's right. It's and what the Independence Day. The fact that I'm having a rally mm-hmm. on that day, you can really think about that very positively as a celebration, because a rally to me is a celebration. It's going to be really a celebration, and it's an interesting date. It wasn't done for that reason, but it's an interesting date, but it's a celebration. Really? You wanted to celebrate the end of slavery with a stadium full of white people? What, is this dude trying to gentrify Juneteenth? It's a celebration. What a bullshit excuse. You know who Trump is? Trump is that dad who tries to act like he didn't just forget his kid's birthday. All right, son, I'm off to the bar. Oh, but daddy, it's my birthday. That's right, and uh, (laughs) what better way to celebrate your birthday than by getting drunk with all my friends? You know, I'm glad that Trump didn't go through with this rally. Because if he did, there's a good chance there was gonna be one black family who showed up thinking it really was a Juneteenth celebration. Hey, I brought the potato salad. Oh shit, I misjudged this situation. So luckily, Trump seems to have solved the Juneteenth rally dilemma. But as is usually the case with Trump, 
It's never just one problem. Because while his rally no longer conflicts with Juneteenth, it still has a major conflict with the coronavirus. With President Trump now just days away from his first rally since the coronavirus outbreak, a new warning this morning from Tulsa's health department director. Dr. Bruce Dart telling Tulsa World a large indoor rally with 19 to 20,000 people is a huge risk factor today in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Noting a significant increase in cases, Dr. Dart says he's concerned about our ability to protect anyone who attends, including our ability to ensure the president stays safe. Acknowledging the risk, the campaign is now requiring anyone who attends to sign a liability waiver, giving up their right to hold the campaign or venue responsible if they contract the virus. Okay, look, I know that social distancing has been falling out of fashion recently, but it's one thing for people to be gathering outdoors wearing masks to fight against police brutality and racial oppression. It's another thing for thousands of people to gather indoors, probably without masks, to watch a boxing match between a man's mouth and his brain. I mean, the fact that Trump is making attendees agree to not sue him if they get coronavirus at his rally should be a pretty good signal that this whole thing is a bad idea. It also shows you how full of shit Trump has been about coronavirus this whole time. Yeah, because what does the contract even say? Promise not to sue me if you get this deadly disease, which is basically a hoax and not that bad, but totally under control and you can cure it with bleach. Also, How's Donald Trump gonna tell other people they can't sue him? That is the most hypocritical thing I've ever heard. Suing people is Trump's favorite thing in the entire world. As we speak, the man is suing Yankee Candles for not having a hot dog scent. So, either way, it looks like this Trump rally is officially happening. Coronavirus be damned. And if you are planning on going to this rally, I mean, go with God, but just remember, Every time Trump makes you sign something in advance, it means you're about to get screwed. When we come back, I'll be speaking to activist and former Democratic candidate for Georgia governor, Stacey Abrams. Stick around. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. My first guest tonight is Stacey Abrams, an activist and leader in the Democratic Party. Earlier today, we spoke about her new book, Our Time Is Now, and her fight to end voter suppression. Stacey Abrams, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thank you for having me, or not. Yeah, that's, I, that's a great way to put it, having you and not at the same time. Um, we're living through a very strange time where you know it, it felt like coronavirus was the biggest issue uh, affecting America, and very quickly we've come to realize that there is a much um, longest standing issue that America has had that people are now standing up against and fighting about in the streets. And that's, you know, racial disparity, police um, brutality, um, the lack of justice for black people in this country, for brown people who are oftentimes oppressed. You have lived that life in more ways than one, you know, as a black woman and as someone who's been in politics, you've experienced America in a very unique way. How do you feel about what America is going through right now? I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we actually separate these moments from one another. What has happened with COVID-19 is that it exposed the fractures and the inequities in our healthcare system and the expectations we have where essential workers essentially were the people we weren't protecting, but we demanded their obeisance to our needs anyway. And then what we saw happen with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Rayshard Brooks just in the last months or so what happened to Tony McDade is that we see that part of the dehumanization that we experienced with COVID 
translates into how we are viewed by those who are charged with protecting us. That police brutality, that systemic injustice, that systemic inequities are all the part of the original sin of America, which is the devaluation and the dehumanization of people of color, primarily and most clearly black people. Atlanta has become a hotbed of these conversations. Georgia has become a hotbed of these conversations. Everything from Ahmaud Arbery to uh, Rashad Brooks, as you just mentioned, has thrown Atlanta into turmoil. You know, you've had um, police officials resigning, you've had the mayor coming out and condemning the violence, and it feels like Atlanta is, is more on edge than we've seen, I mean, almost ever. When you, when you look at what has happened, what is happening, and, and, and the conversations around it, where do you think America needs to go? Where do you think Atlanta needs to go? Where do you think Georgia needs to go? I approach this in a different space because my first major activism on my own was in the 92 Rodney King protest. It was being a part of a community separated by gates, the college on one side, housing projects on the other, but we were all cordoned off and tear gassed by the city of Atlanta, by the state of Georgia. I understand the outrage and the pain that is discomforting to some and offensive to others because I understand where it begins. And what we have to understand is that these moments cannot be allowed to dissipate and let us return to not a normal, but to a state of numbness where we just accept that our deaths are gonna happen. We accept that our degradation is going to happen. My hope and my expectation, the reason I wrote this book is because there is a pathway for more, but it doesn't happen if we just assume that we get what we get and we don't deserve more. It really is interesting that you've written a book um, that I think affects so many, including yourself, you know, in, in a really personal way. To write a book about voter suppression, you know, is, is too many people would be a, a tall task because they'd say, can you prove it? Can you show it? We just saw primaries take place in Georgia where people were forced to wait in hours. Some people even left before they could vote. What was interesting is that this took place in predominantly African-American communities, but also in Republican communities as well um, that are predominantly white. My, my question to you is, when I look at the book that you're writing now and what's happening in Georgia, what are you learning from Georgia that America needs to learn about voting and protecting people's rights to vote? First of all, voter suppression has a singular way of being expressed in Georgia. I experienced it in 18. I experienced it on Tuesday in 2020. And it's happened for the last 20 years. But what's singular to Georgia is not solely limited to Georgia. Because we also watched on April the 7th as men and women were forced to stand in lines at the height of COVID-19 in Wisconsin. We saw the hours-long lines in Texas because of the shutdown of precincts. We know that in Nevada and South Carolina on Tuesday, while Georgia got the lion's share of the attention because of the size of our population, there were also challenges, hours-long lines, because they shut down precincts in Clark County in Nevada. What we at Fair Fight, the organization I started, what we are trying to do and what I'm trying to do through this book is make us pay attention to voter suppression now in the primaries so we can fix it for the general. Because the other side, the conservatives that have architected this suppression, they hope that we give up. They hope we look away and they hope that the conflagration and the, the, the explosions of anger and pain that they you know, basically die down before November and that we allow the system to continue the way it's been designed. What was interesting about Georgia was the fact that, you know, some Republican precincts were affected as well. 
Do you think that that undermines the argument of voter suppression or do you think it shows something else? It actually, it, it's the through line that I've tried to push since 2018 in specific, which is that the targets may be people of color. It may be young people. It may be the poor. But when you break the machinery of democracy, you break it for everyone. Incompetence and malfeasance, when they come together, it can't distinguish who is the target and who is a bystander. And that's why you saw Republican communities, you know, areas that the Speaker of the House oversees, they couldn't vote. Black folks couldn't vote. Brown, brown folks couldn't vote. It happens when you, when you harm the infrastructure of what holds us as a nation together, everyone suffers. And they may not suffer in the same amount and not at the same time, but eventually it takes us all down. There, there's no getting around the fact that um, one of the reasons you've been put forth as a potential VP is because you speak to so many of the issues that Americans are facing today. And because many people feel like you would bolster Joe Biden's presidential run, you know, you would bring um, not just different angles, but I guess a different experience and a, a different demographic as well who, who support you. You know, we've shown, we've seen your numbers in Atlanta. We've seen how strong you are with Hispanic voters, with younger voters, et cetera. That's, that's been the biggest conversation in and around the name Stacey Abrams. My question to you, instead of, are you going to be the VP? Are you running to be the VP, et cetera, which, I, which I've seen you've been asked a thousand times is rather, what do you think the role of a vice president should be, especially in this climate? The role of a vice president is to be the, the chief lieutenant to the person in charge. It's to shore up where additional support is needed. It's to take on specific tasks when they need to be delegated. But most of all, it is to reaffirm for an entire nation that the leader sees them. And part of my background is that I come from a working poor community. But as a legislator, I did the work of holding police accountable, passing legislation. I did the work of criminal justice reform, ensuring that people had access. I worked on concrete issues, helping bring together communities, as you pointed out, that are often separated. I was able to convince Republicans to work Tea Party, to work with me on environmental legislation. And I was able to get Republicans to do what's right to hold police accountable. I know how the systems work because I've been a part of them, but I also know how they work because I've been a victim of them. I come from an activist community and an activist family that believes you fix the problems you see, you don't lament them, you work on them. And that's what I would do. And if I were so honored, it would be my role, any role, the role of any person who the, the vice president chooses to be his running mate and his partner, to use what we have to bring our experiences to add to the narrative of what America can be. And that's why I'm, I'm so excited to even have my name mentioned. Uh, I hope to have you back on again and again and again. And I hope everybody reads the book because um, I think uh, every American really needs to understand how important it is to uh, maintain the safety and sanctity of their votes. So Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Mr. Noah, it's been an honor. Thank you so much, Ms. Abrams. After the break, I'll be talking to the legendary Alicia Keys. Stay tuned. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Grammy Award-winning musician Alicia Keys. We talked about her new song, Perfect Way to Die, which speaks to everything that's happening in America right now. And we got to talk about how she's using her platform to raise awareness about Breonna Taylor. Check it out. Alicia Keys, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> thank you, thank you. How's it been for you? Have you... How have you been feeling with all of this conversation, communication so far away? 
I feel I feel more connected and disconnected than ever before. I don't know if you're feeling the same thing, you know, because everything we do is like this now. But then like, you know, you're talking to someone, but they're not there. And then I'm trying to see your face. But then I see my face in the corner because there's another picture and then the cameras and another. It's like, how, how are you dealing with it? Are you are you coping? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, the, the family is healthy. The family is good. So that's that's step one. I think I definitely have gotten more used to communicating in this more digital space where, I, you know, at first I was completely weirded out by it, but now I'm, I'm embracing it and I feel, you know, I feel like I get it. So working out. You, you've written a new song. And again, you know, Alicia Keys writes songs about love. Alicia Keys writes songs about like the journey of falling in love, you know, heartbreak, etc. But this is a different type of heartbreak. You know, you've written a, a song and, and the title of the song is Perfect Way to Die. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the why of the song. Why did you write the song and, and, and what does it signify to you? Wait till you hear it. I mean, oh my gosh. It, it really started, the, 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 the catalyst for the song was uh, Mike Brown and Sandra Bland. And, and so you, you hear these stories and you hear their stories in these lyrics. And, and the devastating thing is that it's never not going to be relevant. And where we are right now in the world and in this country, in America particularly, we are in a real, a real place that we can all see that there is a major, this is the most major pandemic of all. You know, this deeply rooted racism, this police brutality, this treatment of black people, that is just completely unacceptable to the point where daily we're seeing, you know, lives lost, people murdered for nothing, nothing for being black, you know? And, and so this song really does encapsulate that. And also the fire of the cities that we're all in, the fire of energy of the of the rallies and the protesting and and the and the and the and the outrage and the place where we've all reached where we will not be silent anymore, um, and and it says, I guess you picked the perfect way to die. Is there a perfect way to die? It's so powerful, um, and I'm just honored that this song can be alive in this time when you know we really are on the precipice of great change. That's really amazing. Um, I, I would argue, you know, you're one of the people who I've seen really mobilizing every resource that you have to make change happen. Your music, your networks, you know, the, 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 the spaces that you inhabit. Because for some, the music would be enough. But you're part of an initiative that's really beautiful where you, you, you've put together this group of women, sisters in the industry, who all have a voice, you know, everyone from, from yourself to Cardi B and, and Tracy Ellis Ross and, and just amazing women in this space who, who, who you've brought together and have worked with to, to come together and say, hey, let's speak out specifically, not just about the issue, but specifically about what happened to Breonna Taylor. You know, a woman who was killed in her bed because police knocked on the wrong door, broke down the wrong door rather, and, and killed her as she slept. And... And, 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 and I mean, as we're speaking now, there still have been no arrests. The only person who was arrested was her boyfriend who was protecting his life because people just came in with guns. And you've been, you've been working on this. 
I believe, with uh, Brianna Taylor's mother as well. Tell, tell me about the initiative and tell me what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, we spoke to her family, her mother, her sister, who actually had a bedroom right next to Brianna. Um, and for whatever reason, thank God that night she wasn't there. But could you imagine this mom would have buried two daughters? Two. And it's terrible that she had to bury one. And that's, this has been months that this has been going on. And to your point, no charges, no arrests, no firings. And it's, it's, it's outrageous. So we got together, we, we did a simple thing saying, do you know Breonna Taylor's story? And so we also knew that, the, that, that the, the, her city, Louisville, was, was voting on uh, banning this no-knock warrant, which is the reason why all of this happened. And so we had to be very timely because the vote was happening on Thursday. And I believe our collective kind of voice, voices and our posts came out on Tuesday. And so on Thursday, sure enough, along with everybody else who's been doing so much work around this, um, sure enough, it was a unanimous vote that they banned wow. the knock warrant. So um, I think that's one step. Obviously, those officers need to be charged, need to be arrested, need to be convicted. Um, and so actually on the Until Freedom website, there's a very clear outline of who you can call the mayor, the, the attorney general, there's a, there's a, the general attorney, there's a, a nice list of people that you can call. So no matter where you live, where you're from, um, you know, just continuing to be relentless, I think is a part of all of the justices that we want to see. Before I let you go, you know, part of the journey of, of being a black person is living between two states of, um, pain and joy. And for this Juneteenth, you, you are going to be, is it piano battling against John Legend is, do I, do I understand this? Cause they said there's going to be a battle. And I was like, between John Legend and they're like, yeah, it's a piano battle. And I was like, I've never heard of this. This is like the most highbrow, like hood thing that I've ever heard of. Cause I love battles. And then I was like, but it's going to be pianos. I was like, what? Tell, tell me a little bit about the Juneteenth John Legend, Alicia Keys piano battle. Well, you know, versus uh, my husband, Swiss Beats um, created and Timbaland created this forum, which is really right. the, a celebration of greatness, you know, where two really awesome artists will come together and battle, have a versus opportunity to share their music, to share their, their moments. And it's been incredible. And especially during this time of COVID and us being, you know, so kind of, you know, confined to our spaces. I think it's it's really been something that so many people look forward to. So um, Juneteenth is is happening on June 19th and it really commemorates and it's a celebration to commemorate the um, liberation of the last enslaved people in America. And to me, you know, it's, 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 it's far more accurate of a time to celebrate than a July 4th, which still had many people who um, were not free and were not, were not, liberated. And so I think this is what we're celebrating. So me and John, we do come together for verses um, and we are going to have a beautiful battling celebration um, of music, piano, songs. I'm excited. I mean, <laughs> I don't even think you know what's going to happen. I myself don't even know what's going to happen. I think nobody knows what those versus battles, which is exciting. That's what I'm saying. So I'm just excited to, you know, have this moment. I think it does, you know, it helps so much with, with all that we have coming forward. Alicia Keys, thank you so much for your time today. We'll tune into the Juneteenth battle. And yeah. uh, congratulations on all the work that you're doing. We'll make sure we direct everybody to try and help in. Thank you. I'm so, and you too. Such, so much love. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you to everybody who's watching for just being awake, aware, 
and open to, you know, the great change that we all want to see. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. And you too. Thank you so much again, Alicia Keys. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go, The Daily Show and Comedy Central have been donating to three groups who are fighting against police brutality and systemic racism. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Equal Justice Initiative, and the Bail Project. Now, if you'd like to help and you have anything to give, then all you need to do is go to the following links and donate whatever you can. Until tomorrow, though, stay safe out there. Remember to wear your mask. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.